Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocatorsPodcast.com. My guest on today's show is master fundraiser Rahul Mudgal. Rahul spent 20 years as a fundraiser across long-only strategies, hedge funds, fund-of-funds, customized solutions, startups, and nonprofits. Collectively, he's raised and helped raise $60 billion for firms since 2005. Raul started his career in the industry at Powerhouse TT International and later joined the Children's Investment Fund, or TCI, where he led the marketing effort that raised $20 billion in just three and a half years. Within TCI's affiliate model, Raul also was responsible for the largest India fundraise in history and the largest sector fund launch in history. 
Our conversation covers capital raising lessons learned from teaching, the value of transparency, the gold rush before 2008, the lean times afterwards, modern fee structures, the three key points to effective marketing, the three traits that will kill you, the two biggest issues startup funds face, the best questions asked by leading allocators, and some of the worst horror stories in attempted capital raising. We close by comparing fundraising for charities and investment firms. Rahul has a wealth of knowledge in how to raise capital, and he's chock full of wisdom in describing his experiences. Please enjoy my conversation with Raul Mudgal. Raul, it's so wonderful to see you. And great to see you, Ted. Well, I love starting with people's backgrounds, so why don't you just dive right in? So grew up in London, went to university in the UK, Russia, Japan, and the States. And then Hold on a second. Yeah. Russia, Japan, Japan and the States. And the States. Yeah. What brought you to all three? So I did a PhD on how regions with resources use those resources to gain political and economic leverage over central governments. My case study was the Russian Far East, which sits between Siberia and the Pacific Ocean. So Russia and Japan, obviously, and then the top guys in the world are in the US. I did a stint at Harvard, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, University of Washington, Seattle, and University of Hawaii. Not so bad. So what degrees did you end up with after this whole path? I have an undergrad in international relations, a master's in economics and politics of development, and a PhD in political economy from LSE. So you finished all this schooling, and then you do what? Well, in the interim, I get pulled onto a British government project, which is connected to what I'm researching. And also my old university invites me back to go and teach there. So I spend four years commuting between three cities, living in the one in the middle, which is Birmingham, studying in London, and then teaching at Kiel, which is sort of in the Midlands, sort of near Manchester. So for four years, I was just commuting between all three. And what were you teaching? International political economy to undergrads, which was great. You realize how smart you're not when they ask you really good questions. And I learned as much from them as I hope I helped them learn. So what did you learn from teaching? I learned to be patient. I learned that there's people who are smarter than you. And I learned to listen. I think those are the three things. And I think actually those are the things I took with me in my post-academic career. So what led you out of academia? The British government project was coming to an end. I wanted to be back in London. And academia is a great world, but it's full of a lot of stifling hurdles, a lot of slow processes to get anything done. And I just kind of, I hope I'm more dynamic than that. And I wanted to just come back to London and feel that energy. So I applied to loads and loads of jobs. And they were finance, they were diplomacy, there were lots of different things. Nothing was kind of concrete of what I was going to do. And then this job came out with a small boutique asset manager. I said, well, your background in teaching is kind of what we're looking for, for someone who can look after our clients. We haven't got anyone who looks after our clients. I said, okay, fine. Can you write our newsletter for us? Can you sort of make sure they're looked after? So those skills from teaching really came across the writing part, the patience part, making sure people understand what you're doing, so explaining things. So there's a lot of synergies there. So yeah, that starts in 1998. What was that first... That firm was TT International. And at that time, they were the number one international IFA manager in the world. So we had biggest endowments and foundations, the best corporations in the US. So straight away, I was thrown in 
to meet all these guys day one. I was like, wow, I'm speaking to all these amazing people who I've heard of, but all of a sudden I'm looking after them. How did you tackle this new role? I am just sitting there surrounded by all these really smart people who know what an equity is, who know what a benchmark is, who know what alpha is and beta is. I have no clue. So I just <laughs> sat there and literally like a sponge, I sat and absorbed it all and listened to what they were saying and then started reading, reading, reading Warren Buffett way, common stocks, uncommon profits, all that sort of stuff. So just read, 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 and then started reading everything that was going on in the market because 1998, 1999 was a fascinating time with LTCM going on, the crisis coming for Russia, then the tech bubble and all this stuff was happening as we were sort of sitting there and then the Berlin Wall collapses. So the world is like this crazy place. But at the same time, I have to understand in terms of the investment process of this firm that politics was connected to economics. So really how it made them choose which stocks to put in a portfolio and all that sort of stuff. So literally, I just sat there like a sponge absorbing everything. And a lot of it was regurgitating even before I understood what I was talking about. Yeah. So how long did that learning process internally at TT happen before you felt ready to go start talking to the clients? Literally three months. I started October 5th, 1998. And by the end of December, I was on my own. Just let me go through it. So it was hard, but it was amazing. And I think that's how you learn. When you're thrown in, you just have to get on and do it. So it was a whole new world. I was fascinated. I was learning so much about the world, the markets, and all these concepts, which I had no idea about. It's a completely different world to what I was used to. And what did you find when you went out? A lot of times there's a segregation in this business between the investment principles that the clients want to interact with and then the business development team where the manager says, no, 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 you just go raise me money without a plan or an agenda. I was at TT for seven years. I never was left on my own to go and raise money. I did everything apart from the final pitch. So the PMs did the final pitch, but I did all the client take on, all the interaction with them in terms of what they wanted, sat to them, spoke to them, got to know them, took them out for drinks, all the rest of it. But I wasn't let loose until 2005, which we'll talk about, which someone yeah. let, gave me a chance. And so there's a huge, huge disparity between their thinking and my thinking, because I'm much more of a relationship person. So it's kind of like, well, I have to look after these people. So I want to know who they are, how they think, what do they want? Whereas the other guys are like, well, how do we get this money in? that we manage. So it's very, very different. I would say almost they're the investment guys, but they were the marketing guys. And I worked in the marketing team, but I was much more a relationship guy. So it's a very different approach. And how did you balance that when the investment guys are running the shop, they're your boss, they're putting pressure on you to raise money? They let me over time take care of things because the clients gave good feedback. And I was just patient and did things slowly and properly. I think they were always in a rush. And that's something that I learned over time, that actually do things slowly. Don't be in a rush. Because when you're in a rush, you can say the wrong things. Things can come out the wrong way. And you can put pressure on people where you shouldn't be putting pressure on people. So it's almost about balancing what they were doing versus what I was doing. Yeah. So was, they would go out, they'll say, right, these guys are coming back. They're coming in. They want this. They want that. Blah, blah, blah. So fine, we'll get that done. But let's talk to them while we're doing it. So that kind of slows the process rather than just being so reactive that people feel like, okay, we want to do this, but they're coming back too quickly. We need some space to think about it. Because when people are thinking about investing, they need to think about what they're doing, how it correlates to the rest of the portfolio. Is this really what we think it is? And really look at the quality of the returns. And it's a much bigger thing than that. 
do we like these people? Can we work with them? Are they going to be transparent? Are they going to let us come to their offices? Are they going to come and see us? So it's a bigger thing than just numbers, right? So when you start breaking down that process, take one client in mind. Talk about prospects separately, but how do you figure out what the right cadence of communication is with one particular client? Honestly, it's the age-old question you put, 10 economists on an island, ask them a question, you get 11 different answers. And that's really what it is because everyone has their own personal needs and requirements as well as institutional pressures. So there's really no right or wrong answer. But I think you reach a standard of what should be done. And I think over these 20 years, I've learned over time that transparency is key. It really is. It's good for your relationship, but also when you have tough times, people understand what's going on because you're transparent. They can say, well, I understand why this stock's not working or why this concentration's working or not working. And being straight up about it is great. But I think the key to it all, and the person who taught me this, really is Seth Alexander, who said, you have to understand my responsibility as a fiduciary. And he's the one who really taught me that out of everyone that I've worked with over the years. And what did that mean in that context? It means it's not just a relationship about you investing in this fund or with this manager. It's understanding that what happens with that manager and that relationship has an impact on his responsibility for an endowment. So it can be not just that investment, but how it correlates to other investments. What's the liquidity profile of that in terms of what he can pay out to other people, the access he has to the manager and the underlying holdings, all that sort of stuff. So it was a lot of things there which I didn't really understand until he really explained it to me and I was like do you know what I really get it now so it made me sit in his mind and say how can I help him do his job and before that it wasn't about that it was like right what do I need to do to do my job but it's not about that it's about actually understanding what the things that investors need to help them do their job and if you understand that then you can do your job better and you become more proactive so over the years when I do a report I now include much more than I would have ever included because I know these guys are going to ask me for this and this and this and this and you just keep adding it. So it reduces their need to keep coming back to you. Can I have this? Can I have this? You just standardize it and everyone gets that information and they pick out what they want. And you just learn. You learn over time. So the implication then is that there may be a range of things that different people want, but there is a certain body of information that everybody wants or wants some of. Correct. Simple things. You'll laugh. People don't want to tell you what AUM they have under management. Why? The smart investors triangulate that AUM. So they say, right, you tell us your AUM. We'll speak to your administrator. We'll speak to the prime brokers. And I've seen it time and time again where investors have come to me and said, the guy said he's managing X, but he's managing X minus this. It's a lot smaller. So people just lie. What have they got in their portfolio? So I know one investor said, we had this manager, amazing returns. And we asked them if they used options. They said they never used options, but actually over time, it became apparent they were using options. So they just lied about it. So people want to know kind of how much you have in swaps, how much in physical, attribution, country, sector, stock, all that sort of exposure. It's simple stuff, but I don't understand why people are so cagey about sending it out. And what happens with the softer issues and transparency? So through the life of any manager you're working with, there are good times and bad times. There's internal friction that resolves itself. When you're in a moment where, boy, there's some information that's not great, might be it's temporary, might be permanent. How much do you share with a client if you're trying to be transparent? So I've learned post-crisis, 
just deal with it. Lay it on the table, tell someone what's wrong, and they'll be much more respectful of you as an organization and as a group of people if you're upfront with them. So if something goes wrong on the investment side, just tell them. Explain what's happened, why it's happened, and what you're going to learn from it. If someone's leaving, just tell them because a rumor mill is faster than you can ever be. And the key thing is to take control of the situation. And if you take control of it at the beginning, then you're going to be able to deal with it. And you'll take whatever bad news comes your way. But if you leave it and it starts to fester, having been in that situation a couple of times, everyone's calling you going, I've heard this, I've heard that. And you've lost control. And there's no way you can ever get control. You lose respect. You lose the message that you're trying to portray. And everyone interprets it differently. And they're all speaking to each other before you've got to everyone. So it's so important. And then what happens when you're in an organization where the portfolio managers don't see eye to eye with that concept? Well, unfortunately, I'm not very good at dealing with that. And what's the age old definition of integrity is doing the right thing when no one else is looking. And to that end, I will always do the right thing. And I've been in situations where I've had to do it because it's the right thing to do. And I've been blasted by the PM, but I've said to them, look, I'm sitting around the table looking at people I've known for 10, 15, 20 years. I'm not going to lie. I'm just going to tell them the truth. And they may not like it. You may not like it. But what I care about is not if that person's invested us, but in 20 years time, if they'll pick up the phone to me when I call them. And that's what it's about. And everyone forgets that. Everyone's so focused on execution. This business is about duration, right? And it's not about, oh, I've got money from them now. I'll move on. It's not about that. It's about, can you call them? Can you talk to them about other managers? Can you talk to them about opportunities? And those things, if you do the wrong thing, you're just never going to get that. Yeah. So if I play devil's advocate with you a little bit, someone could look at that conflict and say, well, Raul, you're just serving yourself for the long term. You're not serving our organization because, yes, you have this opinion that this thing that happened and you should tell people, but that doesn't reflect well on us. And we think it's going to be resolved in a month anyway, so why bother sharing it? And that's fair. But the fact is relationships transcend organizations, okay? So if you have a relationship with an investor, now today I work with investors since 1998. I've worked through six, seven, eight, nine different firms. But the fact is they always know what's going on. And any manager I work with knows that I'm always going to be honest. And if they can't handle it, then I'm not going to work with them. So that's something straight up at the beginning I will say to people is like, I'll tell people this is great and it's a good idea for you to look at. But also if you do something wrong, I'm always going to tell people. And they're a bit shocked, but I'm like, that's why if I pick up the phone to these people, they listen and they trust me. To me, that's what matters more than anything because managers come and go. But those endowments, foundations, families, they're around forever. So it's a different mindset. So people don't think about that. And I think too many people sit there saying, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And all of a sudden, they realize actually when that manager closes down or they leave, whatever, they're sitting in this world where all these people, they've burnt all these relationships. They can't call those people again. Life, it's all relationships, all of this thing. It's not about money. It's about relationships. And everyone forgets that. So let's go back to your career at TT. Yeah. So you start, you're now working with the clients. And what happens over the couple of years while you're there? So I joined TT. It's under $2 billion of AUM. And the space of 18 months, it grows to $8.5 billion. In 18 months? In 18 months. We're just winning business from everyone. The performance is insane. We have closed in the interim at $3 billion, But as soon as we reopen, the queue's waiting. And it's just insane. Anyone we want, we're getting money from them. 
And then this firm decides to become everything to everyone. And we launch an Asia fund, an event-driven fund, everything you can think of, we do that. But as you do that, the organization grows, it becomes more institutionalized, it becomes more processes, more bureaucracy, and a glass ceiling comes over. And I'm like, okay, I can stay here forever and enjoy it, and it's great, but I'm not going to learn, and I want to learn. And I take a sidestep and go and join a private Swiss bank. It's the worst decision of my career. What year was that? 2004. I resign after six months. So what happened? It's everything that I hated. It's nepotistic. It's bureaucratic. It's not focused on the client. It's focused on the organization. It's just not what I'm about. And the role wasn't what I was told it was either. Neither was a comp. So I was just like, I'm done. And in the meantime, I get a call from a headhunter who'd called me actually a year before I'd taken this job and said, there's a role out there. These guys want to meet you. And I'm like, well, who is it? And he, to this day, he's a dear friend. To this day, I still respect him for it. He wouldn't tell me who it was for. I said, okay. And then he said, well, I'll send you a job description. I look at it and I say, it's my dream job. What did the description say? It basically said, you will lead the business development and investor relations for a prominent hedge fund that's going to build out a platform. They want someone who's going to take charge on looking after the clients, building out the business, developing the strategy, the branding, look after all the client reporting and your responsibilities include attending conferences, looking after the investors, building an investor day, all that sort of stuff. And I was like, this is great because these guys are clearly at the cusp of sort of becoming huge and they wanted someone who could sort of grow with them. So I went for an interview, I met the COO and we laughed for an hour and then the principal came in and we sat there for two hours and at the end, he said, give me 20 references that I can call. And I played hardball and said, you give me someone, I'll tell you if I know them. We came up with 20. And then he called me the next day and said, I really want you to come in and speak to us some more. And yeah, so since 2005, basically been now at the helm of raising the money and looking after clients rather than just looking after clients. Yeah. And that portfolio manager was? Chris Hon. Chris Hon from TCI. TCI, yeah. 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 So now you're getting ready to launch TCI. And you're tasked with raising money. What was that like, changing from just trying to serve the clients to bringing dollars in the door? It was literally the best feeling ever, but also the most scary. So imagine in front of you, you've got a mountain, and you're really excited that you can see the top of it and you can go to it. But the thought of you actually climbing and the actual physical work involved in carrying your backpack and the oxygen and all the rest of it, it's invigorating, but it's also excruciating at the same time. So Chris had launched. We had another manager on the platform, and they were just about to launch another one and then go from there. So I literally, my first day, we go to an investment committee meeting for one of the biggest endowments that was invested with us. And Chris said, right, we're going to this meeting. Come in. And this endowment, I knew them from TT. And I went in the CIA and said, oh, great. We're going to work in with you again. And just sat there. Chris went through the story, talked about the returns, did everything. And at the end, pushed the presentation book to me and said, it's all yours now. I literally broke a swear because at that time, that platform had about $6 billion on it. And I didn't know what was going to happen after that. What happened after that was like nothing I've ever experienced in my life. I felt like I was king of the world because everyone in the world was calling us. We just couldn't even process the amount of inquiries we were getting. And we built, five years on, we built a platform of $30 billion with five managers on. Yeah. And it was incredible. I traveled all over the world. We had 1,200 investors at our peak, 
all the the good, the bad, the famous, the infamous endowments, foundations, corporations, family offices. It was incredible. It was the dream. It really was the dream. So let's walk through some of the some of the challenges. On the one hand, Chris and TCI is it's just extraordinary track record of investing, which maybe it makes it easier. On the other, there are people who have said, well, he's not such a warm, fuzzy type of person. What value add do you play when the portfolio manager is perceived as just a savant who prints money for clients and everybody wants their way in the door? There is actually a process there of getting people on board. So there's a lot of admin to do. First and foremost, you have to go back and understand who your investors are, okay, how they think. Everything was there, but it grown so quickly. For example, there was no link between the underlying registered shareholders and the clients, okay? So you had client A, but they had XYZ holding Inc. So I had to spend a lot of time matching all those out to know who had how much money with us. In some cases, it was obvious. That's first thing. Second thing is actually processing and facilitating the meetings with Chris and the clients was a big thing, as well as all the other managers on the platform. Third thing is investors need to go through due diligence process, even though in those days we were less willing to help as we are today about giving investors what they needed. But people also spent a lot of time trying to understand what was behind these numbers, how are these numbers being generated. I think the big question actually, the thing we had the biggest pushback on is Chris had a foundation. And a lot of people said, hey, I'm a foundation, or I'm endowment. Well, I don't really want to give money to a manager who's funding another foundation or endowment. Or Chris is activist and all these names and it's headline risk for us. Help me understand how I get around that. So there were a lot of things to sort of think about there. It wasn't as easy. It was a lot of work. And I can tell you it was a lot of work because I worked all the time. So it wasn't just Chris, me picking up the phone going, hey, you're giving us money and that was it. I wish it was, but it wasn't like that. It was certainly easier than it is today but also had to manage Chris, take him to meet clients. And there were times where we had to travel together, do things. Then we used to have this huge investor day in New York every year where 500 people would come. That took months of planning, months and months and months. You had to coordinate all these meetings and stuff. So it was a lot of stuff and a lot of queries back and forth, back and forth. It was streamlining the reporting, setting up a CRM system. Then we, as the business grew, became part of a management committee, which managed day-to-day issues at the organization. We had five different managers on the platform. So at any one time, one of them was closed, another one wasn't. One was having a good time, one wasn't. So there was just always things to do. It just never, never stopped. Let's start with TCI, and then we can talk about some of the affiliates. Clients wanted to invest. And you've talked a lot about the importance of understanding your clients, understanding their needs. But to do that, as someone in the business development role, you need their time. And so... How much of your ability to do that was predicated on being around funds, TT and then TCI, that people wanted to invest in? It's huge. So being with firms that people want to invest with obviously is a great thing. And it becomes about being a traffic cop and managing that traffic, right? Directing it the right way, telling it when to come in and when not to come in, which road to take and all the rest of it. There's other times where you have to go out and raise. And sometimes you won't believe me, but there's situations that come up and you're like, wow, this is really throwing me in. I'll give you a great example. I'm going to Asia. Chris calls me. I land in Hong Kong, calls me on a Thursday night and says, I need 800 million by Monday. Okay, fine. So I go to sleep. I wake up Friday morning. I sit on the phone 
and raise 800 million bucks, call him Satin, suddenly 800 million is coming on Monday because who's going to make a big investment in Visa? So there's situations like that that come up and you're like, wow, this is not just about dealing with the traffic. It's actually going out and saying, right, actually we need to really, really lay down here who's going to give us money, how we're going to structure that money. Is it going to be three year or five year? And who do we want to take it from? Because you're always conscious then of how much money people already have with you. Do you grow that? Or do you take new investors in? There's, there's lots of things to think about. Yeah. So I had a few occasions where I had to do that and it was great yeah. because in those days you could do that. I think today you can do it, but you have to be the right manager who thinks about things at the right time and is capital disciplined and thoughtful. Yeah, it's definitely different. So let's move it from, okay, the star manager that everybody wants to get in. Yes, there's a lot of work, but at that point in time, you actually had the interest and the ability to call people and raise $800 million over a weekend. How about the affiliates? So now you have new funds. There's some implicit endorsement of Chris and TCI. What were the experience like? And you can either take them one by one, or why don't we start with the one that was the least appetizing on the surface to investors? There were four affiliates. One of them still exists, Parvis, who I work with today, who are great. There was an India fund, TCI New Horizon. There was a financials fund, Algebras, which is huge today. And then there was a ex-Fidelity guy called KDA Capital. So KDA was probably the hardest one to do. But I think part of that is because we'd just done an India fund and three months later we were doing another fund. So I think the volume of kind of reach out was a lot. And Parvis wasn't that old already and it was already European based. So that was probably the toughest one. It probably took us 18 months to get to a billion which people probably today think, well, that's not bad at all. But in those days, it was a long time versus an Algebras, which launched day one with 1.1 billion of demand. It's the largest sector fund launch in history. And we started with 675 day one and took it over time. So it was just a crazy time. And yeah, and these launches were all what years? So TCI launched January 2004. Parvis launched October 2004. TCI New Horizons, October 2005. KDA launched December 2005. And Algebra's October 2006. Yeah, so it was all pre-crisis. All pre-crisis. <laughs> all pre-crisis. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So we didn't know any other world. I had people who would call me up and say, we've already approved an investment in you. And they hadn't even met us. I'm like, that, that's crazy. But <laughs> you would have investment vehicles structured in such a way through swaps, through banknotes, through derivatives, all sorts of crazy things that people were doing to just get money into a manager you know there were a couple of family offices i dealt with who i found out subsequently after the crisis that they had portfolios that were levered four or six times so if you're down 50 percent, you head to zero you lose everything so you now one family i worked with you know they had six billion dollars they went to one billion dollars in wealth it's still a lot of money but people were doing crazy things absolutely yeah. crazy things so i think reality setting it was horrible and it was tough but you learned about who you were and what you believed in and what your morals and your ethics were and really fundamentally going forward how you were going to do this job. The principles that you thought you knew and that guided you prior to that were not really the ones that were going to guide you afterwards. Everything changed. And as horrible as it was, I still got bullet holes in me from then. It was the best experience because it really humbles you. It makes you realise you don't walk on water, no one walks on water, nothing's sustainable, nothing's forever. But... You don't learn from success, you learn from failure, right? And this is the thing that taught me everything that I do today and really what's important and how to do this stuff. And I think I've really, really found who I am and how this should be done, really. And 
I don't care how everyone else does it. I do it my way. And people still haven't learned from those times. It's incredible to me. But more than that, I also say most investors I deal with are world class and they're phenomenal. But there's also a handful of people who still haven't learned from the allocator side, who are still doing crazy things like asset liability mismatch, investing in managers they shouldn't be investing in, not understanding the structure of the returns that those managers are giving them, where the returns are coming from. Is it coming from stock picking? Is it coming from leverage? Is it coming from concentration in one specific name? People don't look at that. They don't look at the correlation between the managers and portfolio. And all of a sudden, they wake up and they're like, oh, wow, I've got 10 managers that have all got the same stocks. No wonder I'm down. So it made me realize also what I needed to do, but also what investors should be thinking about. And that, again, goes back to the point I made about Seth is sort of really trying to sit in those people's shoes and understanding what they're doing and what they're thinking. So now I spend a lot of time with investors when I meet them, understanding who they are, how they invest, what makes them think, what makes them worried, how they're thinking about the world. Because then you can sort of get into their mindsets. Are these the right people for us to work with or not? Do they really get what we're doing? Are they long-term? Are they patient? And the key for me is actually when you have a tough time, are those people going to give you more money or not? And if they're not, then it's not the right people. So let's roll forward through the financial crisis. What happens with your career? I have a tough time. And then I sort of think, March, April time, 2009, what am I going to do longer term? I thought, well, this has been great, but I want to kind of do this choosing who I want to work with. Ultimately, I worked for Chris and Chris chose who was on that platform. And so I sort of started thinking about it. But the first thing I needed to do was to step away from that and think, what's the future? So I stepped away and I was lucky enough at that time for Parvis guys to come to me and said, we still want to work with you. So it was continuity for me. It was great. And they were open to me working for other people as well, as long as there was no conflict. So that's really what I've done today. And I've no, I've actually worked with Parva since 2005, first with Chris and then separately from Chris since yeah. 2009. It's been great. And so the post-crisis environment for raising capital, different? Completely different. Completely different. If you put it in a time spectrum, I would say what used to take six weeks now takes 18 months. The intensity, the level of information, the due diligence – I've had to learn about the managers that I worked with before to a level that I never had to because I'm getting asked questions that I've never been asked. And even today, 15 years on, people, the amount of work they're doing, the quality of the work they're doing is incredible. I love that because that's, they're investing in a relationship, okay? The longer that someone takes, the longer they're going to be with you. So there's one firm that I went to meet in 2009. They didn't invest with us until 2013. They took five years. But they invested heavily and strategically and they're long-term, but that's great. Because in the old days, it was pick up the phone, the money would come, boom. Then something goes wrong, the money's gone. So I fundamentally believe in long-term. And, you know, now duration is even more important to me than anything. What types of firms have you worked with in addition to Parvis post-crisis? So I worked with a long-only manager in Asia. She's been investing in Asia longer than anyone, 25 years we built a great business and she retired earlier this year. We gave all the money back to investors. It was great. And it was nice doing it in a different way, doing it in a different regulatory authority. We're based in Singapore. We did only manage the accounts. So it was great. And actually being there at the beginning, designing it all and doing everything was fantastic. Hadn't done that for a while. That was great. And then I've helped a number of guys pro bono on the requests of investors, prime brokers, or those people reach out to me. And there's a huge amount of talent out there. Huge, huge, huge. 
I feel quite excited actually because for the first time in a very long time, there's a lot of good guys coming out. There's a lot of younger guys who've worked their way up an organization or been the number two for a long time. And people feel they're ready now to sort of go out there. So there's so much to do. But there's also a lot of the bad habits coming back. I can see that people are worried about short term. The market is so myopic. So people have FOMO big time. So if you go back to 1999, 2000, if you didn't own the tech stocks, you weren't going to perform. And it's the same thing today, where people fear if I don't own certain stocks or certain sectors, even certain geographies, you go back three years, people worried about investing in the US, they wanted to diversify. But today the US market continues to do well. And everyone's like, well, I need to stop doing active international and do passive US because it's going to do better. But they're being short term about it. You have to think longer term. And if you put your eggs in one basket, that basket's going to break. So it's really interesting. So all those bad habits are coming back big time. And I sometimes feel that people are becoming more momentum, more short term, and just missing out on the bigger picture. So you've had such a wide spectrum of different types of investors and and a number. What are you hearing when, say, there's some younger up-and-coming talent you want to invest with? And depending on the box, it might be a higher fee box, and there's this big question of the value of active management and the price of active management. What are you hearing? I've had less discussions about fees than other people have. Because I think, let's take a step back. I think in the old days, everyone talked about strategy, okay? And I think people focused on the wrong thing. It was never about strategy. Certainly today, it's not about strategy. It's about structure. And when you talk about fees... People don't mind paying fees as long as they're structured the right way, okay? So the old 2 and 20 charging every year, forget it. That game's over. But if you charge 2 and 20, but you pay those incentive fees over three years or over a hurdle or over a benchmark, that's fine. And if you deliver the returns, that's great. Now, there's people who are coming out with all sorts of different ideas, management fees going down as assets grow, which is great. And I think that's good. But the key thing we've got to remember is that if you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. And I think it's really important that people are incentivized to work hard, to deliver good performance, to do good work for you. And if the money's not there, they're not going to do that. They're going to find shortcuts. And I think people end up resenting actually working the way they're working. So I think we've got to be really careful there in terms of making sure that the right people get paid. And I'm sure people deliver performance, they'll get paid. You make your money from incentive fees anyway, not from management fees. Management fees are just, they don't mean anything. But I think people are really good at being thoughtful about where those management... Firm doesn't need $200 million of management fees. What are they doing with that money? Okay, so it's absolutely correct to make sure that people don't continue to charge the fees in that way. But incentive fees are charged differently now. So in the old days, a long biased manager would charge from zero. But today they either charge over a long-term time horizon or over a hurdle or over a benchmark. And it's the right way to do it because ultimately we're here to make money. But the interesting thing I think is now you're seeing this huge, huge conflux of the merging of long, short, long only private equity. And the number of the people I speak today, equity is equity. They just have a bucket for it because in the old days, the differentiation between them was duration and fees and structure. And today they're saying, well, actually, I'm quite willing to do long only that's more illiquid if it delivers performance or hedge funds that have a hurdle. And so it, it, the whole world's changing. Everyone's thinking about these things. There's, there's a lot of people for the first time I've seen in a long, long time that's saying, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to think about things. Where do I go from here? What's going to happen to the world? 
So they're being much more thoughtful in different ways. So when you get a call from an institution or friend that said, hey, there's this new fund, can you talk to them? What advice do you give a new fund manager? So let's say it's not someone who's likely to launch with a billion plus. So I had such a call earlier this year from someone I really respect who emailed me and said, hey, I just met this guy. I can't tell if he's brilliant or naive. Can you meet him for me? I said, fine. At the same time, I got introduced to the guy by two prime brokers. I said, can you meet this guy? I met the guy. I put 45 minutes in my diary. I spent two and a half hours with him. And I think he's naive and brilliant, but he just the passion he spoke with. He'd been thoughtful in every way about his structure, about his fees, how he's going to build the team out and everything. I spent two and a half hours with him. And then I've just helped him raise. He only took 300, but he raised $1.2 billion. Who's the manager? It's called Black Sheep, Alex Fortune, based in Ireland. Comes out of Ennismore, doing small and mid-cap Europe. And we sat there for three hours just a few weeks ago, deciding which investors he should take and which investors he shouldn't. And that's a great situation to be in. And I've said to him, there are two types of investors. There's asset owners and asset allocators. And you always want to work with asset owners because you're speaking to the people whose money it is, who have final say. The asset allocators... It's not their money. They're investing it for someone else. So they're vulnerable to what that end investor's thinking. And then you're the third leg in that cog. And so you always have to wonder what they're thinking and then what the people behind them are thinking. You never really get to the end investor. We sat down, we went through this and thought about him. I got him his COO. And I was tough on him in terms of how he was thinking about stuff. So you're not thinking about this the right way. You need to do this. You need to do that. And it's been great. And we got some of the great ENFs invested in there. And he's going to be a rock star, really feel good. So my advice, I say three things when they look at a presentation and say, really distinguish about how you're different because people always think they're different and they're not different. The second thing is talk about the mistakes you've made and the lessons you've learned because that has had an impact on how you think about investing. And the third thing is have a business plan because when investors invest, they're not just investing in a fund, they're investing in you and your business and they want to understand what your vision is, right? You know this from Protégé, the stuff that you did, you're always looking about people's businesses. It wasn't just about the manager. What's their vision? What do we want to build? And then I say to people, the three things that will kill you are ego, speed, and leverage, right? And always remember that, okay? Don't have any ego because as much as you can feel like you're taking over the world, it goes in a second. Why are you in a rush? You're early 30s, early 40s. You want to do this for 20, 30 years. So just wait for the right clients, build it the right way. Do it slowly and you'll be fine. And leverage, think it's fine to use leverage, but understand what that means, okay? What are the impacts on that? Whether it's leverage in the companies or leverage at the portfolio level. And people don't think about those things. So those are the pieces of advice I give to everyone. So a situation like this is probably atypical in that there's a rapid degree of success that turned out in raising money, even if you didn't know. How do you advise people that are struggling with the tension of making a business work economically Versus trying to play the long game. In some cases, it's never going to work. And I'm quite honest with people about that and just say, <laughs> listen, it's just not going to work. You just forget it. And there's other guys who are really good. There's another guy recently who just came out of a big shop. He needed an anchor investor. I helped him get an endowment on the West Coast, give him money. But it's a long, slow process. And understanding to him, investors don't think about what's their break even when they're starting, okay? 
Where are you spending that money? Why do you need 10 people? You don't need 10 people. This again goes back to the point about thinking about building your business plan. Think about your assets, your infrastructure, your people. And over time, as they grow, what you're going to do with those. So I think people have a lot of misconceptions about what is the right thing to do. Anyone who leaves a big organization is a refugee, right? And when a refugee starts their life, they start with a lot less than they had before, okay? Whether it's financially, in terms of um, possessions and things. So the same way I think about these guys, like, well, you don't need that whole huge infrastructure and bureaucracy you had at your old place. You're leaving for a reason, okay? It's to do it your way and to do it simpler. So don't get bogged down in all the nonsense that goes with all of that. So I think people, it's fine to have big ambitions longer term, but start small and start simple. The biggest issues, I think, the two biggest issues for startups is they overcomplicate everything and they don't take enough risk, right? It's quite ironic now you see people saying, guy's great, but he needs to perform. He's not taking enough risk. Obviously, you have the extremes where people take too much risk. But I think if we think about all the big launches in the last 10 years, People have raised one, two, three, four billion at day one. How many of them are still around? Not that many. So I kind of explain that to people time and time again. Just go slow. Think about these guys who launched. They don't even exist anymore. There's no rush. Take your time. Do it properly with the right people. That's the only advice I can give. You need to have a passion for doing this. And it's about investing. And if I see people that don't have that passion, then what's the point? Just, you know, there's a couple of guys I met recently. They're smart, but they don't have that passion. They're too focused on what investors think and trying to say the right thing to those people, trying to say to them what they want to hear. It's the wrong way to think about it, right? So how about somebody in your shoes where you've had some great success that allows you to be patient, to meet with people, maybe you're going to help them. At what point in time do you start navigating, okay, I want to get compensated for this? Or I'm just taking lots of meetings and I'm happy to share my wisdom because I'm a teacher and that's what you are. Well, the regulations stopped me from getting compensated. <laughs> so, but I think, look, the thing that everyone forgets about is if people are successful, it's good for our industry. Okay. I think everyone believes that, but so many people are so focused on themselves and it's about the greater good, right? So when I see bad news about hedge funds or investments in the newspaper, I think it's a good thing. Why do I think it's a good thing? Because the people who really understand it won't run away from it. But the people who don't, they run away from it. And the kinds of headlines that you see are people are scared about volatility. They're scared about lockups. They're not doing concentrated managers. They're not doing this, not doing that. If you really dig into the headlines about who's saying that, it's not the great and the good investors. It's not the asset owners, okay? It's the asset allocators because they're trying to protect themselves. And so I think I really, really am conscious when people run away from this stuff is actually quite often the best time to invest. I was just with one of one of the family offices that I work with in New York and he was telling me they have money with a manager they've been with since the beginning. For 15 years, he's analysed 15%. But he said his investors have only received 9% annualized return. I said, well, how's that? He said, because people give him money at the wrong time and they take it at the wrong time. And I think that's the thing that people forget about this. This is a long game. It's a duration game. If you're not willing to think long term, just don't do it. From the perspective of all the meetings you've had, everyone wants to know, you know, what are the smart people ask, the better investors what are some of the best questions you've heard ask of managers from the investors, asset owners that you respect the most? There are so many. I think there's two ways to look at it. It's the questions and it's the process of the questions. So I think some of the best questions have been about someone's personal life and background. 
what's made them the way they are, what's motivated them, what what gives them the mindset that they have. And I think people don't understand that. They spend too much time focusing on the results rather than the process that's made someone become the way they are and how they've thought. The second thing is actually spending time with the individual team members and saying, especially for a day one startup, okay, this guy's going to run the firm. Do you trust him? Do you know that he's going to pay you the right way? Do you really feel he has the ability to take risk? Do you feel he's going to listen to you? And people don't often don't do that stuff. Third thing is really, really spending time on the business side of things. And people quite often don't spend time on that. Investments can blow up, but if the firm gets things wrong in terms of operations, you're dead. And people don't spend the time doing that stuff. So I think it's really, really important to sort of look at both sides of that. And people don't spend enough time doing that. But I think the psychology part of it is really getting inside someone's brain to understand what they're doing. And for me, post-crisis, I will say to everyone, only invest with someone who's blown up or been at a firm that's blown up. Because unless they've been through a tough time, you won't know how they're going to handle it, how they're going to treat their investors, how they're going to treat their team, are they going to stick to their strategy. And I think the right investors ask those questions and say, right, tell me about this. I've sat in meetings with a manager, for example, who said he wasn't invested in a certain stock that blew up. And the investor was so smart. He did the background and said, but you were invested. You told me you weren't invested. There's no hiding. If good investors do their work, they'll find out. So that's why, again, I go to the point, tell people about the mistakes you've made. Because if they understand what you did wrong and you've learned from it and you won't do it again, then it's huge. What are some of the worst horror stories you've had to deal with? How long have you got? I mean, it, it's, <laughs> it's, there are so many. That <laughs> I, I can't even start, I can't even begin to tell you stories about people leaving that I know are leaving, but I can't say are leaving. The market finds out they're leaving before they've left and all the rest of it. Investments in the portfolio that shouldn't have been in the portfolio. People claiming they're not there. You know, I had one firm I worked with where the manager refused to put the top position in the portfolio, just forgot that it existed and just sort of talked about the rest of the portfolio, even though it was a big position. But that top name was something, it wasn't an equity position that they were investing. It was something else and they shouldn't have invested that. There was one manager I was helping in Asia who put his whole business at risk and he had a 63% short position which could have completely, <laughs> luckily it worked for him, but it could have blown his whole business up and his fund and killed his investors. That's a new one even for me, yeah. 63% 63% sure. So people take huge amounts of risk, huge. But there's some point where you've just got to step back and go, hold on. Look, from my perspective, it's just always being honest with people and telling them and helping them understand these are the risks for investment. This manager, you've got to understand that. And I always try and like spend the beginning part of a meeting saying to people, these are the reasons people don't invest with us, right? Because that way they understand what are the things that people have concerns about and what are the things that people don't like about a manager. And if you do that, then straight away you've told people, look, this is the situation. And if you want to do it, do it. Great story, I'll tell you. 2006, I'm sitting in a meeting room. I do two group meetings of 12. The first meeting I go in, I talk about a manager Everyone may as well have been asleep. I even heard myself talking, this is so boring. I went to the second meeting, I thought, I'm going to do it differently. I said, these are the reasons people don't invest in this manager because of this, 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 this. And out of the 12 investors in that room, eight of them invested because they understood it. I took a PM uh, eight years ago to a group, a prime brokerage event, and I told him to do the same thing. And he said, really? And I said, yes. There were 20 people in the room at the beginning. There were seven at the end who really had a good, fruitful discussion with 
again, it's not a volume game, it's a quality game, right? I'd rather have five meetings in a day than two groups of 20 because the five one-on-ones are going to be much more fruitful and interesting than sitting there with 20 people, half of whom are asleep. People just forget that it's not about that. What's the most frustrated you ever were with a potential investor? (laughs) Oh, I, I... You sit there and you, you can hear from my voice the frustration in it. You've done everything you can to that investor. And you even said, it doesn't matter if you don't invest. Just please tell me if you don't invest, why you're not going to invest or let's stay in touch. And they just disappear off the face of the earth. And they don't return. And it's fine. But I've learned now I'm old enough and ugly enough to deal with that. And it's fine. The biggest frustration is this is all about relationships. This whole industry is about relationships. And people still forget that. They think it's manager-specific, but it's not manager-specific. It's relationships. And people just walk away in a heartbeat without thinking about things. And it's everyone's invested time in that process. So it doesn't make sense to just walk away and leave it because they've invested as much as I've invested in it. It's fine if it ends up in nothing, but don't just walk away and say, hey, we invested all that time and nothing happens. It's fine. But think about that. I wish there were rules around that, but there are no rules around that. And it's fine. And again, for me, having learned from that frustration, there's one endowment I've known since I started in 1998. And I knew the CIO. We had great dialogue. We talked about lots of ideas. And just coincidentally, we were speaking about her portfolio. She wanted two types of managers. And I gave her two managers. She invested in both, 300 bucks in one go. And she said, Rahul, it's taken 15 years, but we got there. And I said, it didn't matter ever. What mattered to me is that I could call you and you could call me and say, I'm looking for this. And do you know anyone? And that for me is when I put reality on that frustration, say, do you know what? It's fine because sometimes it takes that long. I'm going to turn to some lessons from another side of fundraising that you've done. You know, We have gone back and forth over the years writing some small checks to each other for yes. various charities. <laughs> and I know you've been involved in a lot. So why don't you talk a little bit about what you're passionate about on that side and the organizations, and then also similarities and differences in fundraising for a nonprofit organization from what you've been doing. I've been involved in charity fundraising since I was eight years old. I've always had a a thing for it. I think the biggest peeve I have in the world is that people are not compassionate, okay? I think it's such a huge thing that us as a society forget about. We're all about us and about now, and that's just not the way the world works, right? I think my parents brought me up to be compassionate, and I think that's one of the greatest things they gave me. I studied development, and that was one of my passions, and that came through. And when I got the job with Chris, it was really utopia for me because My academic side of development, along with working in finance, all culminated in one place. So it was a dream, okay? A guy was giving all this money to great development projects all over the world, and I was working, doing what I love doing. And so I learned a lot from that. And then over time, I've become involved in a lot of charities, all of them actually specifically, which I didn't realize someone pointed out to me recently, are all involved with kids. So in UK, I deal, you know, on Friday night, I had a fundraiser for the Marlbury Bush School, which deals with the most severely traumatized kids that you can imagine. There's 31 kids with 120 staff. And on entrance, 6% of them are involved in full-time education. On exit, 100% of them are involved in. So it's incredible work. So they do amazing work. So I've worked with them. I work with Wiz Kids, which I'm a trustee of, which deals with disability and providing mobility equipment to disabled kids from the moment they can move up to the age of 25, getting them jobs, all that sort of stuff. 
I work with the oldest playground in the UK, which sits between three estates, but what you call in the US projects. And it's been incredible for taming relations in that community and stopping rivalry and really helping people grow up in a harmonious community together. I am chair of the board of a charity in California called Scientific Adventures for Girls, which promotes STEM for girls in Oakland. Been incredible. Melinda Gates even wrote about us and the work we're doing. It's incredible because it makes little girls believe they can achieve anything they want to achieve, which in that environment, which is the bedrock of innovation, it's so male dominated and people forget that actually girls can do a lot. So we brought all of these girls that participate in those classes, the Hidden Figures movie, and they all are just so inspired. So it's really, really important. I'm now getting involved in a charity that deals with mental health for young people which is the issue of our generation. So there's tons and tons. I think last count was 12 different charities. And it's been said time and time again, if the elevator comes up to you and takes you up, you need to send it back down. And I, I think it's so important. There's only so much we all need. And it's really important to give back. And that's a good thing. And I would say that again, I spend so much time with guys who are doing what I do, who are much younger, who are starting up. because It's really important to help people because... Again, if you all think of it the same way, it's just good for our industry. All nonprofits have a need to raise capital. So where have you seen lessons that, from your experience, were applicable to helping these nonprofits raise money? I think the difference, the key difference between nonprofits and profits is the ethics side of things. So I've been asked to be involved in a number of non-for-profits, but when I do the digging... There's a lot of ethical governance issues. So I think that's the first thing that I'd say that separates the two. The second thing is when you invest time with a non-for-profit and oh, try to help them fundraise, you really need to find people who believe in that cause. But you have to try and find where there's a relatable story, okay? So if someone's had an illness, then it's easier to raise for that cause from someone who's had that illness, right, that has compassion for that. There's other causes like disability which are harder, because it's a minority group in society. People have misconceptions of what it means to be disabled, the, how much government help they actually get, what they have access to, what they don't have access to. So each of them is really, really different, but it's much more about a personal approach. But I think it's trying to get people to have compassion and realise they're actually very lucky and they should give to causes. So you're trying to approach it from both the cause point and the personal point. Whereas if you're fundraising for a manager, like, well, here's an interesting idea that you want in your portfolio. It's black and white. It's much more black and white. But a charity, again, you've got to just really help people understand what that charity is doing, how they're spending money, what the governance is like. Are they really achieving what they should be achieving? Is the money going to where it should be going? And so spending a lot of time with that, I think it's more intense to do charity fundraising than it is to do fundraising for asset managers. And if you flip it around the other way, have you learned anything from the intensity of raising money for the charities that helped you think about raising money for managers? It's made me longer and longer term. Because sometimes when you're trying to fundraise for a cause, you can apply for a grant 10 times before someone helps you. Same way, when you're speaking to someone about investing in a manager, it can take 10 years. It's fine. It doesn't matter. So it's made me longer and longer in terms of my time horizon. All right. So you're working with Parvis. You're meeting with all these people. We've got 12 charities. How in the world do you spend your day? I don't sleep a lot. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I don't sleep a lot. Parvis takes a lot of my time. 
and I have twins, so they take a lot of my time. So, yeah, look, it's balancing and it's a lot to do, but we've got one life and I want to do everything that I can do. So that's always been me. I've always been like that. That's fantastic. All right, Raul, let's turn to some closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Traveling, because you learn, you see things you'd never see, and you see things that you hoped you'd see. But I love meeting people, tasting different foods, seeing things which have an impact on you, not just physically, but emotionally, spiritually. And when you learn, it just makes you a better person. I think it questions everything you've believed. So I love traveling. So what was your most recent trip that had an impact on you? Probably South Africa, where, you know, as a kid, I learned a lot about South Africa. We did a lot of studies on it at school. But actually going there and seeing this history and what happened and going and seeing and touching everything was incredible. 20 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to do that. So going there now and seeing it all was amazing. So understanding that struggle. And I have a lot of South African friends, but I walked away saying to all of them, I understand your psyche now. I understand how you think, how you think, the way you think, why you think like that, which I never understood before. What's your biggest pet peeve? So personally, I think people that are not compassionate. Professionally, I think people are just too short term. Everything's about execution and life's just not about that. What reading do you almost never miss? It's really hard to say because I don't think I'm a consistent reader. I almost get bored of reading the same thing again and again because I think you almost fall into a mindset where you believe everything that comes from one source if you read it all the time. Whereas if you're constantly changing what you're reading, then it broadens your mind. So let's say there's X source of news that I follow every day. You get into a mindset where you're always going to believe that. But if I'm following Channel A one day, Channel B another day, Channel C another day, then I'm getting different perspectives on things. The same way if I read Magazine A, then Magazine D, then Magazine C, it sort of changes. For my kids, I want them to be as broad-minded as possible, and I can't teach them that unless I believe that myself. So that's kind of how I think about it. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Three things. I say always be a good person, okay? Always go with your gut instinct, because nine times out of 10, it is right. And be the best that you can be at whatever you do. It doesn't matter what you want to do with your life. Just always give it 200%. And just, even if you don't come out on top, but you're giving it your best, that's all you can do. And if you can be the best, amazing. So those three things, really. All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Be rational. I think I spent a lot of time early in my life, being emotional about things. And when you're emotional, you focus on execution. And when you're rational, you focus on duration. And I think that's really helped me in terms of how I think about things. So just think about it. If you're trying to fundraise for someone and you're emotional about it, you get really head up if they don't invest with you. And that means you're short term. But if you're long term and you're rational, you actually understand why people are thinking the way they're thinking. You're like, okay, the time may not be now, but I'm going to have a long-term relationship with this person. You're much more rational about it. And I think that's sums it up in a nutshell. Terrific, Rahul. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ted. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 